This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As Colorado considers abolishing the death penalty, we get a unique perspective today on capital punishment. It comes from a juror who sentenced someone to death. Carl Dubler sat on the trial of Robert Ray, the last person to be sent to death row in Colorado. Ray remains there. In 2005, he orchestrated the murders of Javad Marshall Fields and Vivian Wolfe in Aurora. Carl Dubler was the jury foreman, and welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. I understand 2,000 people were called in for jury selection. Knowing it was a capital case, what do you remember thinking when you were impaneled? Well, we didn't know it was a capital case when we were called. We just got the postcard like everyone else in the mail. But when I showed up and there were several hundred people in the jury room, you know, for questioning, I figured it was a big case. And how did it feel to be impaneled, to be chosen for that jury when you knew what the scale of this was? Yeah, well, after uh, a day of questioning in court, there were actually three different uh, jury selection uh, tests we had to go through, interviews with the judge, interviews with the defense attorneys, with the prosecutors. Then we finally had that jury selection in open court that you might see like on a movie or something where they ask questions of the jury. Yeah. And uh, I remember very distinctly when they they, um, they questioned me and then said, all right, uh, they dismissed somebody in chair number 12. And I ended up taking that person's place. Uh, and I was the very last jur- juror impaneled. How did that feel? You know, I... I I was kind of lightheaded, really, thinking about, you know, because I've been thinking for several days, what if I'm on the jury? You know, what if this happens? What, what are my beliefs about all of this? And then all of a sudden, it's very real. And you, you realize, well, this is something I'm going to have to do now, you talked whether to, I want to or not. You talked about these extensive interviews that you yeah. did, because to be chosen, um, you had to be open to sentencing someone to death, correct? That's right. If you are uh, against the death penalty when you walk into jury selection, you won't be on that jury. If you if you if you say on the jury selection form that even if you are not against the death penalty, but you just feel like you couldn't make that decision for whatever reason, then you won't be selected on the jury. Is that what you were pressed for by the judge, by the attorneys? I'm curious what kinds of questions they asked. Yeah, well, the prosecution, uh, the first question they asked me when I was interviewed by them was, why do you think we have the death penalty in Colorado? And my answer at the time was that that it's it's a statement that not all murders are are equal. That some need to be punished more harshly than others. And uh, you know that was an off the cuff answer ten years ago that I still think is true today. How much thought had you given capital punishment prior to getting that summons? Well, we hardly ever have the death penalty in Colorado. I've grown up here. I you know it's not something that I've really ever sat down and thought about or talked about with my friends or family just because it so rarely comes up in the state. But it sounds like you had an, an answer at the ready. Was that kind of off the cuff? Do you think? Well, it, it actually wasn't quite at the ready. I, I actually uh, had to stop and think. The prosecutor actually had to ask me more than once, mm-hmm. uh, like, "Well, what's your answer to this?" Uh, and and I, you know that's the answer I came up with. But uh, I hadn't thought about what that answer would be before I before I showed up for that jury selection process. And again, that answer was the idea that not all murders are created equal in your mind. And just a little background here. Robert Ray orchestrated the killing of Javad Marshall Fields, who was set to testify against him in another murder trial. Yeah. Uh, and in the hit, his fiance Vivian Wolfe, was also killed. So it's it's been a decade since the trial. How often do you think about your decision to give Ray the death penalty? Well, I I think about it frequently. Uh, every I about, day? Well, probably not every day. Okay. But um, I do think about it a lot. 
and and the decision is it was a heavy decision you know it's something that we knew we'd be thinking about for a long time when we made that decision it was one of the the fears i think we had to overcome in the jury room to not let you know the thought of the future what's going to happen 10 years 20 years from now to let that you know uh, disrupt or get in the way of the job we had to do in the jury room. I want to know more about those deliberations, but when you think about it 10 years later, what do you think about it? What it, what enters your mind? Uh, well, mainly, you know, when I think about the whole experience, I'm mainly thinking about the victims. Mm. I'm, I'm mainly thinking about honoring them and making sure that people don't forget their story. You know, there's probably been since 2005 when this, these murders happened, there's probably been several hundred thousand people that uh, have arrived in Colorado that have no idea about this case. Um, you know, like my, my own children were just toddlers, you know, so they don't know about it. And I think it's very easy with like legislation that comes up now. Well, we think about the guys that are on death row. They're still alive. Uh, not many people talk about the victims uh, so, so far down the road. And it's the victims that enter your mind a decade later. Governor Polis has said he supports abolishing the death penalty. And if a bill to do so passes, that he'd strongly consider commuting the sentences of those already on death row Mm -hmm. to life in prison. That would include Robert Ray. How would you feel if you were, you know, essentially overruled? Well, if if the governor decides to do this, um, or or as he's making the decision, I actually hope he talks to me. I, I would like to talk to him about it. I'd like to understand his thought process. I don't think I could change his mind. Um, but what would you say to him? Well, I I want to know. I want him. To, I basically, I just want him to acknowledge that you know, twelve of his citizens went through a lot of agony and a lot of careful deliberation with great respect for everyone involved, with lots of compassion, even for the defendant. I just want him to acknowledge um, the, you know, our role in this and, and to, to listen to our story. Um, if he does make this decision, I mean, you asked, well, how would I feel? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with that decision, um, but in a sense, you know, well, the, the life and death of, of this defendant is now off of my hands. And whatever happens to, to him in the future would now be on the governor. It sounds like you wouldn't be thrilled with the idea of having that commuted to life without parole. There are, there are concerns and questions that I have, but I, I don't, you know, I understand this is the governor's decision. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say he can't make this decision. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And my guest is Carl Dubler. He sat on the last jury in Colorado to send someone to death row. Uh, That was 10 years ago now. And Dubler's actually written a book about this experience. It's called Playing God in Chair 12. Did this feel like playing God? You know, there was a moment when I thought, you know, what if what if God was looking down on on me in this experience? And he, you know, he might say, uh, how does it feel to do my job? And that's that's kind of where the title of the book came from. It's just really thinking about uh, making a life or death decision. You know, that's a very, that's something that doesn't happen very often. Um, and the in the process of going through this and thinking about it in the years since, um, I think what it's meant to me is that, you know, there were a lot of things I thought were life and death decisions uh-huh. until I actually had to make one. Like what? Oh, how did, yeah, tell me how this helped you contrast. Yeah, so... Um, you know, growing up, I, I come from a, a, 
a pretty conservative religious background, evangelical background, and and you know a lot of things we thought were were uh, you know very important issues. You know everything from well, you know the the creation was a literal six day event to um, to you know whether you can be gay or not is a sin, right? I mean just every everything in between. Whether you should go to an R rated movie or not as a Christian, there were lots of things that we thought were really important issues. And I think after having to make a decision like this, I realized, you know, there's a lot of things where I need to have more grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's save the life and death, you know, agony and decisions for those things that are truly important. So take me into the decision-making, into the jury deliberations. Did they go on very long? Was it a difficult decision uh, to arrive at? Well, I, many people probably don't realize in a, in a capital case, there's actually four verdicts that we had to arrive at. Um, it's one of the most difficult legal processes in in the the nation. Our our death penalty process, of course, we had to find the defendant, you know, either guilty or not guilty of the murder first. Um, so yes, they were long deliberations. I think we deliberated a total of seven days over those over those uh, four verdicts that we had to to come to, and they were what you would expect from such deliberations. They were at times. Um, you know, at times they were emotional. At times we kind of lashed out at each other. At times we didn't know what to do, and we kind of just sat around and like, what, what, now what? Um, Why would you lash lash out at each other? Well, I think just when you get twelve people that are, you know, almost strangers to each other, and then you're you're asked to make a decision like this, uh, and you start to deliberate. Of course, people begin to develop maybe some different opinions or different viewpoints, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually, when you do get to know each other and feel more comfortable, you're more willing to get argumentative about things. And I think that's what you want. I, I encouraged people in the jury room, you know, even if you're the only one that believes a certain way, uh, you need to you need to let us know. You need to have the courage to deliberate because that's what the system is depending on. Did you find yourself trying to persuade other jurors in your direction, maybe to see the death penalty in the way that you saw it? Well, I mean, everyone had a chance to state their opinion and to talk about why they were leaning one way or another. Um, I think a lot of people are concerned about, well, what happens when someone disagrees? I mean, do you, do you, uh, how much do you push the issue? And I think, you know, we didn't know until, until it happened. There was one vote where we were not unanimous. Um, On the question of the death penalty? Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's a, it's really a, a technical thing, but, um, you know, the defendant was sentenced to death for the murder of Javad Fields. He was not sentenced to death for the murder of Vivian Wolf, and that was because we didn't agree. We had one juror who didn't think that the, the that the murder of Vivian Wolf was quite the same, um, and so the death penalty was not imposed in that case, just on that one vote. How did it feel to return to the courtroom when you had arrived at a decision? And I'm I'm specifically curious if you looked at the defendant or if you tried to avoid his gaze. On the first verdict, when we were deliberating whether he was guilty or not of the murder itself, I, I didn't want to look at anybody. I, I kept my head down in the jury box. By the time we got to our fourth verdict, I was like, you know what? We've done our job well. There's no reason for me to look down. You know, I I I had very I was very confident in the way we conducted ourselves. Since then, um, I've actually had to encounter the defendant in the courtroom a couple of times through the appeals process in which some of us jurors were actually subpoenaed to testify in the appeals. Oh, wow. And I've been in the same room just a few feet from him um, you know, on a several occasions and you know, 
never once has he looked at me even crossly. Um, so I don't know how much I can tell from that, but... <laughs> it sounds like you feel very similar today to how you felt a decade ago about the death penalty. I don't think we abuse the death penalty in Colorado. And having been on the inside of this process, and I know how difficult it is to reach a death penalty decision, I don't know why we would want to get rid of it at this point. But when you when you look at the fact that you have uh, on death row inmates that are all black, they all went to the same high school, tried in the same jurisdiction, just in the last few moments, what do you say to people who say this is unevenly applied? Well, I would say it's it's too bad you couldn't have been in the jury room with us to see how carefully we deliberated it. And the fact that, you know, in this case, um, the race of everyone involved, the perpetrator, the victims, and all of the key witnesses, they were all the same race. Thank you for being with us, Carl. My pleasure. Thank you. Carl Dubler was the foreman on the last Colorado jury that sentenced someone to death in the state. That was 10 years ago. A bill is moving through the legislature to abolish capital punishment in the state. On Monday, we're going to meet a death penalty historian. His career-long research has led him to oppose capital punishment. He'll explain that Colorado has always been ambivalent on the topic. All right. When this week began, CBR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, was here to talk about how fast Democrats in the state Senate are moving on some of their biggest bills, like that death penalty repeal. Well, things got a whole lot faster and weirder. This is the sound of five computers simultaneously reading a 2,000-page bill at top speed. And Benta is back to explain exactly what happened. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Those computers were how Democrats handled a Republican request to read a huge bill out loud at length. Will you explain how things got to that point? Sure. Well, Republicans have been getting angrier and angrier about how fast a few Democratic bills are moving, in particular, a bill to change oil and gas regulations. And having bills read at length is one of the few powers the minority party has to slow things down because no other business can get done until the reading is finished. And so a human reading a 2,000-page bill could have taken days, but the computer trick shortened it to hours. And, um, you know, it's worth noting this wasn't the oil and gas bill. It It was a different measure. So it sounds like Republicans might be able to keep using this stalling tactic. Is that right? And will they? Um, We should find out soon. You know, it it didn't end there. Republicans challenged this move in Denver District Court, and there was a preliminary injunction saying the readings have to be understandable. And we should find out pretty soon if the court sides with Republicans and says that these readings, you know, have to be intelligible. It's worth noting this stalling tactic has been used before. Just two years ago, a Republican in the House asked that the budget bill be read at length. And the House's parliamentarian had a group of nonpartisan staffers stand up and all read different pages of the bill simultaneously in order to speed up the process. So I don't think that was particularly intelligible, but no one challenged it legally. I think it's important to understand why time is so critical, because the legislature is not year round. It only meets for a season, essentially. That's true. And they, they have a certain timeline for when things have to get done. Okay, has this changed Democratic strategy at all? I mean, are they responding to Republican calls to slow down the pace of legislation? 
It doesn't seem like it so far. In fact, not long after the court's ruling, uh, the Senate decided to stay open during the blizzard. And one reason, the Senate president felt the chamber was behind schedule. And that meant the first hearing on a paid family leave bill happened during the snowstorm. And Democrats faced a lot of criticism for that. But, you know, what they say is, look, there's another Senate hearing next week on paid family leave, and they'll take more public testimony then. Okay, so... While we were all enduring snowpocalypse, they were working at the state capitol. Where do you expect things at the capitol to go from here? We're just over the halfway point, and the next major item is the budget, and passing a balanced budget is actually the only thing lawmakers are constitutionally required to do during the session. We have a stricter gun bill that's moving through the Senate, death penalty repeal, oil and gas, some measures that haven't been introduced on vaccines and climate change, so lots to keep track of. Thank you, Benta. My pleasure. Benta Berkland covers the Capitol for CPR News. Denver area residents have spent billions of dollars in taxes and fares on RTD's rail network over the last 15 years. But how do we know if they're getting their money's worth? CBR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner relies on open records laws to answer that question. And he joins us now as part of Sunshine Week, which celebrates the public's right to know. Hi there. Hey, Ryan. Uh, let's start with RTD's light rail cars. Uh, we see them in downtown across the metro. Yes, and these cars are, are mostly separate from street traffic, right? So, like, um, as we get out into the suburbs, you'll see them along the freeways. Um, but they are regulated by their own traffic law, uh, lights, so red, yellow, green. And um, I got data from an open records request that showed that they had been violating these signals a lot. S- signal violations a la running a red light? Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and when you say that they're up, how much? So around five or six years ago, um, you saw maybe 40 to 50 a year. Okay. And then uh, in 2017, uh, when I got the data, it was double that. It was well over 100. Um, and in, in one case, a Prius driver downtown was nearly killed when a light rail car violated a stop signal and crushed the Prius. So once you get a data set like that of signal violations, what comes next for you? Nathaniel? Yeah. So it, it comes in like a just a spreadsheet form and you kind of have to figure out like how to make sense of this. Um, so uh, you do a little bit of analysis and you find the trends and then you they naturally lead to questions. And so you go, I interviewed uh, union stewards, RTD managers to help figure out why this was happening. Right. What are the reasons behind mistakes? Yeah. So we, we learned that a couple new lines had opened, the R line, the W line. Um, and so there were more opportunities for problems. But, but, but. Uh, working conditions were, were getting really bad at this time. Um, our, there were the RTD was shorthanded. Drivers were working six days a week, um, long days. They didn't have time for bathroom breaks. Um, the union stu- the union steward told me one guy, uh, one driver actually wore adult diapers. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. So to get through the shift exactly. So a few months later, uh, the the union actually renegotiated their contract. They got higher salaries, um, and RTD is still shorthanded, but it, they've you know they've been able to actually retain more people. Um, and mistakes are down too. And mistakes are down. Yeah, these signal violations. Yeah. So really, um, getting this data, you know, it allows me to force the conversation with RTD. This is something they don't really want to talk about. They don't put press releases on, but it directly affects people who ride it, and we feel like. 
like they should know about it. But there are instances, of course, when you make requests for data or documents and you're you're denied all the time. Um, I so for for instance, let's talk about the A line, which goes from Union Station out to the airport. And I had heard from from some sources that the testing before that line opened, the the, the tests were not going well. Um, and RTD opened it anyway, and then we saw some mechanical breakdowns, especially that first summer. Mid-line with people stuck on right. cars. So I filed this big request. I, I asked for a bunch of records, and um, I asked for test records, and I asked for records between RTD and its contractor where they're sort of fighting over who's at fault here. And, and guess what happened, Ryan? You were? I was shot, shot down. down. Yes, okay. And what were the reasons they gave? Was it about the relationship with this contractor? Because let's be clear, RTD didn't build this itself. Right. So there's the private contractor that built it and operates it. And in, in one case, they said, um, those documents weren't created by us. We can't give them to you. Hmm. Um, in another case, they said, well, this, is, this would be a security risk if we gave this to you, so we're not going to. Uh, will you jump to the end of this story for me? What happened? <laughs> uh, so we fought and we, we had a lawyer write them a letter saying, come on, give us the documents. And they reply very nicely saying, no, nah, we don't have to. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of it, we can't really do much about it because one of the CORA, one of the Colorado Open Records Act's uh, weaknesses is there's no appeal process. Oh. So if a government agency like RTD says, no, your only recourse is to ask nicely and then file a lawsuit and go to a judge. And that's really expensive. So we didn't do that. I wonder if you use records, you know, just for big investigative stories or if it helps incrementally along the way. Um, no, I, I definitely do. So, for instance, with RTD, you know, I will um, go to meetings, I'll look at agendas, and I will notice, like, certain documents are mentioned, and then I'll request those, and I'll get sort of the inside scoop on what's happening, and then I'll ask better questions because I know what's going on. Thanks for sharing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Nathaniel Miner covers transportation for CPR News, and he joined us for Sunshine Week. All week, we've highlighted investigative work by Colorado reporters, from the story of a Western Slope body broker to trials statewide that were shrouded in secrecy. Still, there are shortcomings in these laws, as Nate said. We're going to hear about those in our next half hour. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College, how it's gotten so partisan, and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The public's right to know doesn't always align with what government wants you to know. Whether it's taking down a president, like in this retelling of the Watergate scandal. Hello? Could I please, Mr. Dahlberg? Yes. Kenneth Dahlberg? Yes. This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Yes. About that $25,000 check deposited in the bank account of one of the Watergate burglars. Or if it's uncovering possible shenanigans here at Colorado State Capitol. Simply going into the wrong bathroom that's unmarked, it's not designated, in and of itself is not sexual harassment. We've been discussing all week how journalists often need access to records to tell stories, but sometimes their efforts are stymied. 
And in those cases, an important asset in cutting through the red tape is the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition. Jeff Roberts is its executive director, and we should say that CPR is a member. Hi, Jeff. Hi, thanks for having me. So we have mentioned journalists benefiting from uh, your efforts, but your work is also available to anyone in Colorado. Um, important to say that lots of citizen non-journalists are interested in learning about their communities. Over the years, what revelations have there been about Colorado government as a result of your efforts? Well, there are um, all sorts of uses of the public records laws. I mean, you've you've pointed out uh, several of them this week, but journalists use these records all the time. I mean, this are this is part of the, their reporting tool, and they're doing this on behalf of the public. So, you know, public records laws have been used to um, expose, for instance. Um, uh, oil and gas uh, development that's happening near where housing is going to to go in. They've been used to show um, uh, why um, you know a proliferation of deaths in county jails, things like that. Um, there have been there were no um, uh, statewide statistics on that, but the Denver Post noticed that a lot of uh, inmates you know across the state there had been some deaths. So they did records requests of all sixty four counties to. To, to show what was happening, things like that. And what did they find, just briefly, because that's such an important story? Well, they, they were able to to document, you know, some, I don't remember all the details of, of that particular incident, uh, incident or that particular report, but they were able to show, you know, different, different things that were happening in, in counties and look for, you know, patterns and things like that. What responsibility does government in Colorado, local and state, have to help someone, journalist or not, who wants information about the inner workings? Well, we have two public records laws in Colorado, the Colorado Open Records Act, and we have the Colorado Criminal Justice Records Act. Over on the judicial side. uh, uh, Well, really on the, the law enforcement agency side and the judicial side, and they actually work very differently. There's a presumption in the Colorado Open Records Act that that public records are available for public inspection unless there are they meet certain exceptions that allow them to be withheld or they must be withheld. Would you call those exceptions narrow? Would you call them generous? Um, there, there, there's kind of a mixed bag of them, and okay. and um, you know some of them are generous because of the way that they're interpreted. So, for instance, there's an exception in the CORA, the Colorado Open Records Act. That says that personnel files uh, must not be released, but that's really been interpreted by the courts very very narrowly to mean things like a a government employee's personal information. It's not their letter of resignation. And so that's something that that, um, news organizations and that we help them with, we have to fight all the time. the school principal or or the city manager resigns and the government agency withholds that letter of resignation under because, the personnel exemption under the personnel exemption and we have to you know often uh, an attorney has to write a letter to point out you know why that's not appropriate so the interpretation of the law is uh, as important as the law itself now contrast cora with uh, things over on the judicial and law enforcement side how generous are those exceptions so th- the criminal justice records act works very differently there is not that same presumption of openness except for a very small set of what are called records of official action basic arrest reports things like that everything else can be withheld upon a finding that uh, disclosure would be contrary to the public interest. And there's supposed to be a balancing test to, of interest to come to that conclusion. But very often, 
uh, reporters who are seeking uh, dash cam videos, body cam videos, police internal affairs reports, which is something we're working on in the legislature right now. Those records are withheld because of that. They, the agency says it would be contrary to the public interest to disclose them. You feel differently, I gather. Well, What's the public interest in knowing this? Well, stuff? often so, for instance, you know, when a law enforcement officer is accused of misconduct, the investigation is all over and done with. And uh, perhaps the um, municipality has paid out a settlement of $100,000 or more. This happens. Um, The public, the journalist working on behalf of the public still doesn't have access to those records to to know, for instance, why the officer wasn't disciplined. Uh, Jeff Roberts of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, I think of this time as one of hostility towards the news media. Do you see that reflected in how state agencies or local governments are responding to requests these days? I, I really um, don't necessarily see it as hostility. I do. I do think that um, there. Well, a, a lot of government entities um, abide by what what are in the open records laws, and reporters, the public get information using these laws all the time. But there are some entities that that will go out of their way to either withhold records or make it difficult uh, by, uh, for, for instance, saying, well, that will be a few hundred dollars or sometimes thousands of dollars. To generate those documents. To generate those, those documents and leaving the, the requester wondering why is, is this so. And, and usually they have no recourse because in Colorado – uh, when you get a denial, your only recourse is to go to court, and most people don't do that. You've gone to the legislature several times in the last few years trying to expand open records laws. Uh, I can recall when the state legislature pushed to have autopsy records of minors sealed. Uh, that was eventually vetoed by then-Governor Higginlooper. Uh, recently, law enforcement agencies have moved to encrypt the chatter that goes out over the airways. Uh, scanner traffic. Uh, Maybe let's talk about that latter point. Why shouldn't they be able to scramble those if a crime is being committed or during an emergency? Well, you know, they have uh, reasons that they say of why they want to do it. You know, they're they're, um, saying that, that criminals might be listening in or that some personal information might be going out on the airways. But what, we're, what we've tried to do is point out that these um, listening to scanner traffic is, is a really important tool for news gathering, for journalists uh, to inform the public, uh, you know, to know where to go, to know what questions to ask when something is occurring, you know, some, some uh, incident uh, involving public safety perhaps – and, and uh, you know, it's, it's otherwise you're just relying on the agency to tell you and maybe they don't tell you right away or maybe they tell you a week later or maybe they don't tell you at all. Or they don't give you the full story when they tell you. Or they don't give you the full story. So the, the listening to the traffic at least might help you know what questions to ask. Thanks for being with us, Jeff, and shedding light on this on Sunshine Week. Thanks for having me. He's executive director of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, of which CPR News is a member. And indeed, he joined us for Sunshine Week, shedding light on the public's right to know.
Private First Class Buford Johnson, who lived in Lakewood, passed away at the end of February. He was 101. A veteran of World War II, he received the Bronze Star and Purple Heart Medal, along with many other recognitions. I spoke with his daughter, Darlene Johnson Ortega, two years ago when he received some of those long-overdue medals. She told me her dad was ready to serve when the Army drafted him. Because it was for his country and they called upon him. In the summer of 1944, Johnson's company crossed the English Channel and landed on the beach in France. They then traveled by train, truck, and on foot to the front lines delivering supplies. That November, a piece of shrapnel hit Buford below the knee. He was treated on the battlefield and kept fighting. But his daughter says he didn't talk much about the experience. And when he would talk about the war, he would tell people that war was very terrible, that uh, uh, nobody needed to know about everything that happened, that there were some things that happened during the war and some people were injured terribly that uh, shouldn't even know uh, or talk about it because that would give him bad memories. Buford was honorably discharged in the fall of 1945. He went home to his wife and family in New Mexico. And once he came back to the United States, he wanted to be with the kids, but there weren't any jobs in New Mexico. His dad had taught him how to work the fields and how to milk cows and be a ranch hand and be a cowboy. So that's what he would do in Montana and Wyoming. Then Buford Johnson came to Colorado to live with his daughter and her family after he'd suffered a stroke. Darlene Johnson Ortega says her dad, who was bilingual, read every day and was always a sharp guy. Even though his education at the school was only third grade, grandmother and grandfather homeschooled him. And he passed those tests going into the service with flying colors. Darlene says somehow her father never received all the medals he earned, but he did get a few when the war was over. He asked his mother to keep them safe. And years later... When he went to ask her for his medals that he wanted his kids to see him, uh, she couldn't find them. Then They were in her family trunk, and she couldn't find the few of them that they did give to him. Darlene asked Congressman Ed Perlmutter's office for help replacing the missing medals and to get him the ones he never received. And 72 years after he came home from war, Private First Class Buford Johnson was awarded the Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, and a handful of others. Everybody there just kept clapping, and they were so happy with him, and shake hands and thank him for his service. That was so neat, really wonderful. That is Darlene Johnson Ortega, daughter of Private First Class Buford Johnson. We spoke two years ago about her father receiving those long overdue honors. The World War II veteran passed away last month at age 101. When we come back, marking a century of fine art in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. At the turn of the 20th century, Colorado Springs was a fascinating mix of folks. People were moving to the area for its natural beauty. Tuberculosis patients were flooding in, thinking the dry air would help them. And it was becoming an artist's colony of sorts. We're going to hear about three women who helped put the town on the map with their artistic achievement a century ago. Joining us is Erin Hannon, director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center, which is 100 years old. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And let's start with uh, one of these three women, Julie Penrose, 
that name Penrose is big in El Paso County. Her house ended up becoming the Fine Arts Center. How did that come about? Tell us about her. Well, Julie Penrose was from Detroit. Her uh, father was the mayor of Detroit. And as you mentioned, there were many people who were coming to Colorado Springs for the cure of tuberculosis and um, were also drawn by this uh, this ruggedness of the West and the natural beauty and the aesthetic. And she was one of them. Her husband, uh, McMillan, James McMillan, was suffering from tuberculosis. So they came to Colorado Springs and they lived in this beautiful estate at 30 West Dale Street, the now home of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. And she, her, unfortunately, her husband passed um, and she found herself... Um, kind of uh, seeking out uh, Spencer Penrose as um, as uh, a potential suitor, and and remind us who Spencer Penrose well, is. Well, Spencer Penrose, it's, it's certainly, an awfully nice suitor. I'm yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, quite a personality. Uh, in you know, in that era in Colorado Springs, he founded the Broadmoor Hotel, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, the uh, Pikes Peak Highway, and the the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. Um, he was, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a mining, uh, gold mining and copper mining. Uh, magnate. Magnate, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when they did wed, um, they lived in the home for a while. They then moved to the uh, Broadmoor, um, you know, the Some famous nice, Broadmoor. Nice digs. Mm-hmm. Nice digs, yes. And, uh, and basically turned their home into the Broadmoor Art Academy. And created this wonderful place for professional, renowned artists to teach others uh, to become artists and to also hold extravagant events and um, musical concerts and performances, live theater performances and um Wonderful parties. It was it was an amazing place. A center. The other two women were Elizabeth Sage Hare and Alice Bemis Taylor. How do they come into this story? So Alice Bemis Taylor, um, sh- she was uh, the daughter of Judson Moss Bemis, who uh, was a bag business magnate from the East Coast. So she came to Colorado Springs from Massachusetts uh, because her mother needed some um, healing in the the dry, arid uh, West. And they had a rich family history of being philanthropist, of wanting to care for the community. And so Alice Bemis Taylor uh, founded the um, day nursery. She donated an amazing organ that still is central to life at the Grace Episcopal Church in Colorado Springs. And she founded the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center that we know today because it was her collection of Southwest treasures, a very extensive collection that she was seeking a museum home for. Oh, my. Yes. So she... Nice to inherit that if you're Colorado Springs. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, it's uh, the, the story of these three women is, is incredible. She and, and Tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Sage Hare, too. Elizabeth Sage Hare also came to uh, the West from New York and was... Uh, you know, deeply rooted in the avant-garde, um, you know, ar- artistic society of New York, was involved in the original Armory show. She had deep connections with artists and uh, performers in New York and um, 
came uh, first to Santa Fe, then to Colorado Springs for the arid climate and got deeply engaged in the Broadmoor Art Academy, as well as founding the Fountain Valley School in Colorado Springs. It's just fascinating to me how dry weather and the promise of healing from TB wind up making this incredible impression artistically because you say that they built an art academy unlike anything of its kind west of the Mississippi. Correct. And actually, the the um, history of Colorado Springs really started with this culture and refinement that uh, William Palmer really had begun where the plains meet the mountains and people are coming from London and really creating this art colony, really, even before the Broadmoor Art Academy had formed. So they were carrying on this tradition that had already really become deeply rooted in Colorado Springs. Palmer of the Palmer Divide. (laughs) When it was renamed the Fine Arts Center, it brought in the work of some very famous contemporary artists. Like who? Uh, Like Picasso and Van Gogh and... uh, Cezanne, etc. It was um, quite a quite a thing. Elizabeth Sechere and her connections in New York uh, really led to um, a unique experience for people in Colorado Springs. When they opened the Fine Arts Center, the building we know today in 1936, Colorado Springs had a population of about 30,000 people and 5,000 people came to the opening huh. to take in this um this exploration in the arts that uh, people had not seen in the West. I love this tidbit that during World War II, the Fine Arts Center wound up showcasing some very important works because it was considered safer here in the middle of the country. And even today, most of the Fine Arts Center leadership team is made up of women. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I myself, obviously, um, as the director of the Fine Arts Center. And others. Thank you for being with us, Erin. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hannah directs the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. Three women founded it a century ago. There are exhibitions and plays all year to mark the anniversary. St. Patrick's Day is Sunday. Maybe you celebrate with corned beef and cabbage. We learned something surprising about that dish from food blogger Hugh O'Neill. He grew up in Ireland, has lived in Denver for years, and we spoke this time a year ago. And Hugh, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Okay. It's great to be here. What's this big news that you're going to break for us about corn beef and cabbage? <laughs> well, it's just – it's St. Patrick's Day is a great day for all Americans. And uh, it's a day when Irish Americans really like to celebrate their heritage of being Irish. And for me, as an Irish person living here – I've always found that, first of all, confusing and second, amusing um, for the same reason in that it's really not Irish food. And I thought, well, maybe – Corned beef and cabbage is not Irish food? It's not Irish. I went back to Ireland and I would ask people, have you heard of it? Have you heard of it? And no one – no one has ever heard of this meal in Ireland. It's an American-Irish thing. It's an American-Irish thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. What kinds of looks did you get in Ireland when you <laughs> asked this question? <laughs> they just said, oh, it's those crazy Americans, you know. Mm-hmm. So I started researching the thing and uh, realized where it came from, and it came out of Brooklyn, New York. Out of Brooklyn, New York? 
All right. Um, that was obviously a place that saw its fair share of Irish immigrants. I'm guessing that has something to do with it. Absolutely. That. That's where the story has its, has its beginnings. And it was the Irish coming to New York and they'd be sent over to Brooklyn and uh, they didn't have language skills. It was in the mid-19th century. It was during the time of the Irish famine. They were poor. They were sick. And the people who really had empathy with them there was the Jewish community in Brooklyn. Ah, that seems to explain f- for sure corned beef, I'm guessing. Well, exactly right. When As soon as they uh, started to get themselves together and started to get a bit of money in their pocket, they'd go to the Jewish deli in order to support these people who helped them out. And, of course, they were surprised that there was no bacon in these shops because uh, the Jews don't eat uh, pork products. But the Irish uh, saw that the cheapest cut of beef, of beef in the shop was the brisket. So they bought the brisket, and uh, which was, you know, preserved, corned. Huh. Okay, what about the cabbage part of this? And, well, that's easy to get because co- uh, cabbage and potatoes was all over Brooklyn because you had all these other Eastern European immigrants there. The Russians, the Estonians... Croatians, everybody was there and they all eat cabbage and potatoes. Cabbage and potatoes actually just seems to be a global immigrant dish. Hmm. And I kind of see, you know, when I was a kid, St. Patrick's Day was a religious holiday. And now, uh, actually in Ireland, they changed the rule and it's no longer a religious holiday. It's just a holiday for everybody. But that was inspired by the American experience of the holiday, which they just said – Hey, let's have a party on St. Patrick's Day and everybody can eat this. Well, it's a really beautiful story, the story of corned beef and cabbage, because it it is partly an Irish story. It is partly a Jewish story. It's partly an immigrant story. Exactly. I kind of see the day as an immigrant's day that everybody can celebrate their heritage because most people here are immigrants. Is this something you'd like to bring back to Ireland, though, <laughs> to some extent? Like, do you think it could get it could cross no, the no, pond? No, no, no. We eat bacon and cabbage <laughs> over there, which is... It's a super tasty meal. Bacon and cabbage. Yeah, and the bacon's a different cut. It's a big hunk of meat cut off the back. The closest thing would be maybe to a a loin of bacon, but you cut off these big, thick slabs and serve it with cabbage and a parsley sauce. What about a drink pairing? I'm a wine drinker. A lot of people like like to pair it with um, Guinness, of course, Mm because the Americans... You know, like to drink Guinness. And they like to dye it green, too, which they would never do back home in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> drink green Guinness. But no, I, I'm a wine drinker. But it would be it would be lovely with beer, with cider. If I was to drink a beer, I would drink more of like a, a low-hopped English-style ale. You know, it occurs to me there's, I think, Vino Verde, the Portuguese mm-hmm. wine. Doesn't that mean green wine? It does. A you could drink. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you could drink that for St. Patrick's true. Day yeah. and get your green on. This yeah. has been so fun, Hugh. Who well, knew? Thanks. Yeah. Hugh O'Neill moved to Colorado from Ireland and runs a food blog called Carving Time. That's T-H-Y-M-E. We spoke last St. Patrick's Day. And finally, today, a band that appeals to, quote, hipsters, hillbillies, and hippies. Those are their words. Bluegrass quintet Meadow Mountain takes its name from the hill near Mintern, Colorado. None of the members grew up with bluegrass, but after attending a Punch Brothers show in their hometown of Vail, they quickly learned to love the genre. After just a year together, they were hired as the house band on a cruise ship, Meadow Mountain released their self-titled debut late last year. Here's a track that caught our eye and ear called Radio Waves. Those nights felt really clear 
Music from Meadow Mountain. They performed tonight at the Gothic Theater in Denver. And if you like what you hear, their album was produced by Chris Pandolfi of the infamous String Dusters. We'll bring you an interview with that Grammy-winning bluegrass group in the coming weeks. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I stored away the last of the rain I saved it for a sunny day.